Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast, but out of the energy industry. Now, if you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit TOGGN.org. Again, that is Tango Echo Alpha Oscar Golf Golf November.org. There'll be a link in the show notes, and I can tell you these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence, which is actually going to be a bit of a topic in the show tonight. And please check them out, sign up for the newsletter, and I think they're they're going to be a lot of good information. So welcome to the program, My Huddled Masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. And the first thing you're going to notice tonight is my voice is not what it once was. I have come up with a slight cold. I was at Napal last week. We launched the program officially. It's available for download. And I have to say, I had a good time, had a number of adult beverages, and possibly some minor short-term memory loss in association to that. But it was a good nape, great launch for the show, great work I did with my day job while we were there. It was a real good time. But as soon as I got back home, I was laid low with a cold. But rather than resting, I am here recording because as Freddie Mercury and my producer tells me, the show must go on. So here we are. That being said, yeah, my voice isn't super great. I may have to pause and have a sip of my warm beverage here a little bit more frequently to keep things going. And yeah, I'm likely to sound more muddled than Joe Biden trying to read Finnegan's Wake in a wind tunnel. So bear with me tonight, guys. Very much appreciate it. All right, that being said, yeah, podcast is officially released. It's out in the wild. It's out there now for posterity's sake. And I actually got two comments on, at least that I saw, on the Apple podcast thing where we can do download. They put a rating and a comment. And my producer wanted me to read the comments. I feel self-conscious doing that. They were very nice, though. And I bring them up mostly because I want to say to Unbreakable Anna and to SamIam89PP, thank you so much. Your words were very kind. I very much appreciate it. And I hope you continue to enjoy the show. And I'm very, very glad you're listening. And I hope other folks enjoyed as well. But to you guys, thank you so much. That was very kind. Also, I got a message from a listener, Grace H. And I have to say, this one surprised me as the first outreach I got here. Grace H., who is currently a freshman at Texas A&M University studying sociology. She says that she really enjoyed the show, 
and she really enjoyed the episode on the Yemen Civil War. And she asked if I'd be willing to do an episode on the implications of U.S. oil and gas on the global market. So first off, Grace, thank you so much for listening. Very much appreciate it. I'm glad you're enjoying it. If I had known that the best way to get women in college when I was in school to talk to me, to approach me, was to start a geopolitical podcast about oil and gas, I would have played my time at college a lot differently. But putting that aside, we are very glad you're listening. If you are such an inquisitive person that this is interesting to you and you you enjoy this and like it, then keep that keep that drive to get knowledge and you're going to take over the world. But to answer your question, Grace, yes, we will absolutely tackle that topic this evening. So this show is for you. So you guys know the bit. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Grace, get yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. Now, I am cheating a little bit tonight because I've got this cold that I'm fighting through. I don't actually have coffee. I've got some Earl Grey tea, hashtag Captain Picard. So that's what I'll be sipping on whenever my voice starts to go a little bit. So your patience is much obliged. All right. So let's get into it here, shall we? So if you go back far enough, oil and gas, specifically oil, since that's what was most easily coming to the surface far enough back in time, goes back really thousands of years. I mean, there's recordings all the way as far back as 300 AD and then even some stuff before that, I think, although my memory is a little hazy going back that far. But you had local apothecaries, tribal healers, herbalists, people like that would find petroleum seepage or oil sands, and they would concoct creative uses for this stuff that would just sort of come a bubbling up. But at the time, there was no real need for it. It wasn't really that big of a deal. It was just sort of a one-off thing you found, and you made some sort of a use for it because it was 300 AD. You, you used whatever you found and found something to do with it. The real modern oil and gas industry didn't really start have its impetus, though, until about the 1700s, if you get right down to it. And because, yes, it's this show, so we're obviously going to be doing a, a history lecture in addition to tackling the actual subject. But it's all going to come together, trust me. So what was the preceding thing, the thing that drove us towards petroleum and oil and gas, and specifically, you know, oil in this case? Illumination. Illumination was lighting. Lighting was the big thing. So up until fairly recent human history, if you wanted to have any kind of light after the sun went down, your options were to either not have any or to use candles, or if you had the money to afford oil, you would have oil and you would use lamps. And the oil used for most of human history was pretty much a combination of plant and animal fat that was distilled down and made into a flammable fluid that could be put in a lamp with a wick and it would generate, could be burned and used to light things. Now, of course, with any of that sort of stuff, it either didn't burn very bright or it would burn too fast or too little or it smelled terrible or whatever. And so there were a lot of issues with that. But hey, you know what? It was light in a time where there was not a light switch. So you, you take what you can get. By the time of the 1700s, you start to hit a new discovery, and that was whale oil, whale blubber that was boiled down to oil and then used in burning for lamps. And this was actually a really big improvement. It didn't smell as bad. It burned a lot brighter. It burned for longer. It was, you know, quite the innovation. There were a couple of problems with using whale blubber, and that was the first thing was going out and getting the whales, right? So whaling in the 1700s was expensive. You had to hire a ship. You had to hire a crew that knew what they were doing. 
You had to insure the ship. You had to send it out. It'd be gone for months. It had to go do its thing. Eventually, they'd show back up with all this stuff, assuming a storm didn't take them out or they didn't get hit by pirates or, you know, any of the other problems. There'd be an issue back then. So it was really expensive, and it was quite dangerous to be on a whaling ship back then. And also, just in general, as we know in modern times, whaling, kind of a dick move. So it had its day, but its day was numbered. The other problem with whaling that ultimately came about is there were only so many whales, and human beings could burn through plenty of whale blubber in their lights. And so the whale population was decreasing pretty prodigiously. It's actually kind of ironic and funny that oil and gas, you could say, may have saved the whales, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. So at any rate, yeah, by 1700s, whaling was taking off. It was doing its thing, but it was becoming a problem. We were very quickly running out of that resource. By the 1920s, whales were becoming harder and harder to find, causing the price of whale oil to increase dramatically. And really about this time, you had an inventor, and I really contract on his name. I probably could have searched harder, but I'm sick, so bear with me. But anyways, there is a registry in Congress of Camp Hine being invented about the 1940s, which was an alternative to whale blubber, which was used for lighting. And it's kind of interesting because this was a mixture of ethanol alcohol distilled with quicklime, which created a brightly burning fluid. It was you know, basically marketed as light fluid, light fuel where they would say, okay, hey, we've got this. You can buy this rather than than whale oil. And it was easier to manufacture and it was more readily available. And it kind of really took the edge off the whale oil market that was decreasing at that time. So this was about the mid-1940s, or excuse me, 1840s. But the problem with this was about the 1860s, we had a little thing called the U.S. Civil War. A couple of you guys may have heard about that. So that particular conflict had an interesting economic impact. There was no income tax at the time. President Lincoln needed to raise money to fund the Union Army and to fund federal operations during the war because our wars are very, very expensive, and they were bringing in a lot of dough. And so it was decided the way to raise this money was to do an excise tax on a number of things, including alcohol. So all of a sudden, this very popular lighter fluid or light fuel that was being used to replace whale fuel was extremely expensive to manufacture now because the alcohol you needed to make it was getting heavily taxed by the Union forces in order to generate revenue to fund the Union Army. And this is interesting because if it weren't for that, it's very possible that this would have been a very serious contender for a fuel source, at least for quite a while. Because remember, there are no automobiles, there's no real manufacturing to speak of at this time was very much all about how are we going to light shit. And so that was the big deal. But when the taxes on this go up and people start looking for whales again and olive oil and all the other things they would try and burn to generate light, during this time, you had a number of folks across the world that were simultaneously kind of stumbling across petroleum and crude oil. So you had in Russia, you had, you know, somebody, you know, making their first discovery out there in the 1700s. You had a guy in Scotland making the first sort of, you would get it with a shovel, digging up a hole and generating some crude. You had some stuff happening in Canada and the U.S. They found this huge pitch lake in Trinidad. It's a Caribbean island right down by Venezuela with something like 10 million tons of natural asphalt covers like 250 acres. And it's, you know, several hundred feet deep. It's this huge, huge 
petroleum asphalt lake. And that actually became so irrelevant. So there's this Canadian, Abraham Gessner, who took some of that pitch and discovered that if he, you know, had some coal and some butamine and some shell oil and all of that, he could concoct up kerosene, which would burn brighter and longer and be way more efficient than whale oil or this alcohol-based lighter fuel that had been used for the decade prior. The problem was, and he invented about the same time as this, um, compare this, what was this, campine fluid. And initially, the problem was that it wasn't easy to get the ingredients to make kerosene. It was these petroleum ingredients because the easiest source of it he had access to was this big pit in Trinidad, which this guy's in Canada. Trinidad's down there, you know, the edge of South America. That's a really expensive process. Eventually, he started to realize that you could find similar substances that would seep out of rocks or cracks in certain crevices in certain parts of the country, but there was no consistency to it. And certain people, like in Scotland at this time, had started realizing, well, if this if this substance is seeping out of the rock, what if we were to dig here? Would we find more of it? In some cases, they did. Well, fast forward just a couple of years to 1859, Edwin Drake decides that, hey, rather than just digging with a shovel and seeing if we find this oil that's so useful, what if we were to drill a hole? Because what if there's just a big pool of this shit down there somewhere and we could just drill a hole and, you know, suck it out with a straw, basically? I'm obviously simplifying it, so work with me here. But he did that. He made the first commercially successful oil well. He drilled a hole that was 69 feet deep near Titusville, Pennsylvania, and it was kind of a huge deal because it was the first time that these hydrocarbons were really readily accessible. He was having the stuff come up, and he was able to sell it, and you had Gasner, who all of a sudden had an easy source of the petroleum products he needed in order to make kerosene, which meant they could flood the market with cheap, readily available fuel for lights. And all of a sudden, whaling was no longer as important. We were no longer having to burn animal fats. We could actually burn these petroleum products instead. And it was way cheaper and easier to do now that we had a way of getting to the stuff more easily than just hoping we stumbled across some of it seeping out of a rock somewhere. So Gesner actually eventually moves to New York. He founds the North American Kerosene Company. And he even actually opens the first refinery in the United States at Long Island in order to strip the hydrocarbons needed for kerosene from coal, and then later on some of the crude that they were drilling up in Pennsylvania. So pretty fascinating stuff. So as kerosene lamps start becoming really affordable and readily available, it seems like, you know, petroleum products are suddenly useful. And on top of that, you've got the Industrial Revolution happening. And it's also discovered that a lot of these oils they're pulling up are really useful lubricants for machines, which are now doing a lot of the heavy work that was otherwise being done by people in the past. And so that just further secured things. But really, once you get to 1908 and the Ford Model T, the first commercially available automobile, and I mean, you got to keep in mind, first commercially available automobile, 1908, look where we are a little over a century later, that car thing kind of caught on. And of course, it used an internal combustion engine, which was effectively powered by petroleum products, gasoline. And the reason for that is it's, and forgive me for not straying too far into the engineering here, but it's an efficient source of energy. You combust or ignite gasoline, it produces a lot of energy, which can be transferred to through the motor and into the wheels and move the vehicle. And it's a very compact and efficient form. It's not like, you know, take 
the alternative, a train powered by coal. You've got a guy shoveling coal into a furnace to generate steam and move the thing. And yeah, it gets the job done, but you got to have a lot of coal and you got to have a guy shoveling. And it's just a lot more efficient if you're putting some liquid in a tank, kicking it over and off you go. And yeah, I know that's a wildly simplistic explanation, but humor me. It's a geopolitical podcast, not an engineering podcast. So moving right along, the automobile catches on. That becomes a thing. Within 20 years, tons of folks have automobiles, gasoline. The need for drilling is just massively expanded. And so the oil and gas industry really is cemented as an important thing. When you get to World War I, you have a few other major inventions that start to take front and center. Now, keep in mind, up until this point, petroleum was not really a strategically valuable substance. It was a convenient substance, right? It was used to light things more easily, right? If you didn't have a kerosene lamp, that's fine. You could still go get candles anywhere. You could still go get you know, an animal fat or, or plant materials and burn those to generate light. You could There were ways around this. So it was a convenience. With the automobile, it became a little bit more important, but still wasn't like a militarily considered thing. World War I changed that. In World War I, you have the first airplanes coming out. You've got the first blimps coming out and being relevant in combat. You've got tanks coming out, U-boats, all of these things that are now becoming diesel and gasoline powered and so on. And effectively, this changes the dynamic because now if you can control the fuel source, you can theoretically shut down an entire army's operation. You can force them into a corner that they can't easily get out of. So for the first time in World War I, nations had to start thinking about, huh, you know, fuel is now a really, really important thing. We're no longer using wind for our ships or steam. We're no longer you know, using horses to get around. We're talking about tanks and automobiles and all that. It changes the calculus. So keep in mind during this time, the major producers of oil and gas, and again, we're talking kind of specifically oil in this case, gas is a little bit of a different story. We may hit that up in a follow-up episode or something, but near enough. The biggest players to start with were the United States and Russia. You know, really, that's where it was at. Now, Russia fell behind a little bit later on the Cold War due to Soviet mismanagement and inaccessibility of the resources and so on and so forth. And the U.S. was really still quite dominant for quite a while. Really, the U.S. didn't start dropping off until the 1960s. But my point of saying all that, Grace, is that it's not like us getting into the oil and gas market is a new thing. We have been a driving force in the market for a long time, since the beginning, effectively. Now, that being said, there were a number of other things during the 20th century that would be a factor. We started discovering natural resources, oil and gas in places like Venezuela, additional places in Russia, the Middle East, you know, in the the late 18th, uh, or excuse me, 19th century, early 20th century. And there was a huge drive for corporations from Britain, France, the U.S. and all these places to try and go out there and get a hold of these natural resources because the world was becoming more and more and more industrialized and was relying more and more and more on accessible, cheap transportation and fuel and energy and all of these things as technology evolved. 
And so you wound up with an interesting situation, especially in the Middle East. By the 1930s and 40s, there was a handful of what we would consider super major oil companies today. At the time, they were called the Seven Sisters that had huge amounts of control over the oil fields of the Middle East, which at the time had become sort of the preeminent oil fields. Huge reserves were found, fairly easily accessible. So yeah, companies were getting in there and were just gobbling up as much access as they could to these to, you know, operate and explore and drill and produce oil, right? And that all seems fine. The problem is that this is the age of the robber baron, of the oil barons. And these guys, they really didn't think very far ahead with some of the stuff they were doing. And back then, there were not as many regulations and laws and things to kind of enforce behavior. To give you an example, they controlled, at their height, 90% of all the oil fields in Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, and across the Persian Gulf. No matter what country it was in, these companies had gotten contracts and owned all of these oil fields. And so they were taking out billions and billions, and that's in 1930s and 40s dollars, of profits. And they were paying basically seashells to these Arab countries at the time and just raking in the profits. Now, listen, before anyone gets all bent out of shape, I am a capitalist. Absolutely. That being said, you got to do these things smart. If you're just robbing people left, right, and center, eventually you can't be surprised when they get pissed off and do something you don't like, right? And this is kind of the case with these robber barons. They were way out of control. I mean, if you're carting out wheelbarrows of money out of these people's countries, you can't be surprised when they start doing stuff to get rid of you because they think you're screwing them over. And that's kind of what happened. So ultimately, they would run into problems. They would have rebel forces and guerrilla forces trying to get rid of these oil companies. And so they, these seven sisters, these super majors, would call up the British government or the U.S. government and say, hey, we got a problem with the locals. Come send in some military to put them down. And it was just kind of a mess. I mean, it was, I hate to say it, but it was the really kind of dark side of capitalism. It was capitalism that was really off the rails, the stuff that would make Bernie Sanders just titillated to hear about. But unfortunately, that's a thing that happened. So you've got these super majors, these seven sisters, just bilking the place, right? In Iran, the country of Iran, due to the extremely lopsided contracts that they were forced to sign almost at gunpoint, meant that they only received nationally 16% of the declared net profit from the oil produced and sold. And that the records of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, or the British company, later going to be BP, were not subject to any kind of an audit from the Iranian side. So they just had to accept whatever the company said 16% of the net profits were. So, I mean, you could see how incredibly lopsided this was. I mean, it was definitely problematic. And so in Iran, particularly, this was a real issue. I mean, so in frustration, the parliament of the imperial state of Persia, which is you know, would eventually become Iran as we know it. You got to keep in mind, not only do they see themselves getting fleeced, at the same time, you've got the Cold War happening. I mean, this is the 19, late 40s, early 50s at this point. You've got the Cold War going, and you've got Soviet agitators showing up saying, hey, wouldn't it be nice if the means of production belonged to the people and not these foreigners? Huh, comrade? And so, yeah. 
the people start getting all riled up that, yeah, maybe we should own all this and we should take it over and get rid of the foreigners. At the same time, you've got Nasser in Egypt kind of doing the exact same thing with the Suez Canal, which would eventually lead to the Suez Crisis. But at any rate, the parliament of Persia elects a super pro-Soviet prime minister at the time, and then the parliament votes to nationalize Iran's oil and gas operations and to expel all foreigners. Because again, people are just pissed off that they're seeing 84% of the revenue, really more than that by a significant margin, get carted out of their country and they're not getting anything but pennies on the back end. They're not happy with that. And that's understandable. And whenever they tried to bring this up, they would either get shut down or have soldiers show up and force things to be compliant. So what ended up happening is they voted to nationalize their oil and gas industry, which was not great for a number of reasons. One, and I think we covered this a little bit in the Yemeni Civil War episode, quite frankly, if these guys hadn't been running national-level oil and gas operations, it's not like nationalizing them that they were going to magically know how, right? If you kick all the foreigners out and just say, I'm taking it over, well, that doesn't magically imbue you with the knowledge of what the hell you're doing, which was a very big problem. The other problem was that the Brits were wicked not happy with this. They had a lot of their assets seized. They got their people kicked out. There's now this pro-Soviet prime minister in charge, and the Shah's position, the Shah was basically their emperor's position, was a bit weakened, and they weren't super happy. So the Brits actually imposed a massive embargo where they refused to buy or let anybody else buy Iranian oil, which in turn caused the Iranian economy to tank, not to mention they couldn't produce anything very efficiently because they didn't know how to run this apparatus. And don't even get me started on the evils of a nationalized oil and gas. That's a whole other conference. We can get to that later. We get to that. When we talk about Venezuela, we'll talk about all that. That'll be an episode in the future, probably. Anyway, but the point is, it was not good. Their economy was tanking. They weren't able to produce very efficiently. And to make matters worse, the Eisenhower administration had become very paranoid that this was the start of a Soviet takeover of Iran. The Soviet Union had agitators in the location trying to stir up support for a people's republic so that this is known. They had been operating in Yemen, as we know. They had been operating in Egypt. So there's all these kind of these Soviet scares, these red scares happening in the Middle East. And Eisenhower was very concerned that this was the start of a red wave that was going to roll across the Persian Gulf and you know put America and the rest of the world in a stranglehold. And keep in mind that American energy, American oil production at this point was very near its height for that time. It would eventually start to drop off once all this stuff settled down a little bit, but it was sort of on its way out because it was just so much easier to produce oil in this part of the world and so much cheaper because of the admittedly probably exploitative business practices of the Seven Sisters that, yeah, at the time, everyone just thought it was so much easier to do that rather than drill right here in the U.S., and the Permian or Eagle Ford or any of these other places. So what we have is the Eisenhower administration getting very paranoid about what's going to happen with the Soviets. Are they going to take over? And so the British government and the Eisenhower administration concoct a plan, as always, to do something about the spread of communism. And, ah, oh man, I love America, but man, we just, we never managed to make the right call in the Middle East, do we? It's always like this Sophie's choice of shit, and we always managed to pick the wrong one. I mean, man. So let's talk about this. So 
the Eisenhower administration appoints a CIA officer to handle a coup d'etat to take out the prime minister of Iran and to give basically all the prime minister, all the democratic powers to the Shah, to the emperor. And yes, if you're sitting in your living room or your car or wherever it is you're listening to this podcast and you're going, I'm sorry, did you just say that the United States government overthrew the democratically elected leader to give the powers to a dictator, specifically a monarch, kind of like a reverse declaration of independence? Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. That's what you're hearing. That's what we did. Operation Ajax, which funnily enough, was headed by, and I shit you not, Kermit Roosevelt Jr. That's right, Kermit. That is the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He was the CIA officer in charge of executing Operation Ajax, which, aside from toppling a democratically elected government and imbuing those powers to the Shah, also is notable for hiring the Iranian mob to help execute this coup d'etat. So, yeah, we may have fucked that one up. Because all of that caused a lot of bad blood, which would eventually result in the 1979 overthrow of the Shah by the Ayatollah, which would replace the imperial government with the super-religious Islamic Republic, of Iran, which has not been super friendly to the U.S., and harkens back to a lot of those things we did to meddle in their politics. And unfortunately, we kind of walked into that one. Anyway, that's a whole other story. We can talk about that some other time if anybody's interested. But this is kind of the foundations of that. So, yeah, we execute Operation Ajax, 1953. Kermit, he uh, succeeds in keeping Western interests in Iran going. The Shah is kept in power, imbued with extraordinary authority. And the prime minister is basically taken out and put under house arrest for life. And everything seems to be happily ever after, at least until 1979 when the Iranian revolution happens. Anyway, all that being said, this 1953 Operation Ajax had a series of domino effects, not just inside Iran that would eventually lead to the Iranian revolution. It also had a lot of ripple effects in the Arab world at that time, because at that time, a lot of nations were nationalizing their oil and gas. Most of them are all nationalized in that part of the world these days anyway. But on top of that, it pissed them off to see the West so egregiously just blatantly meddling in their national affairs. And so they banded together and formed OPEC, the Association of Petroleum, Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is effectively a trade cartel that controls 45% of the world's proven oil reserves. And the plan was to give them a bigger stick at the table to negotiate with the Western powers, which had thus far been walking all over them. And the problem is, in theory, they were kind of right. They were getting raked over the coals by French and British and U.S. companies nonstop. And we were getting really bold with how aggressively we were willing to do regime changes to keep things the way that we wanted them. And the problem is, this is a monster that we made due to just kind of not thinking through the consequences of our actions. Now, that being said, OPEC. Good idea? Bad idea? Well, ultimately, it's a thing that just exists and we have to deal with it for now. It's proven to be a lot less effective than these nations thought it was going to be, although it has created a series of, again, unintended consequences. So they brought OPEC together. They said, we're going to have this leverage and we're going to force everybody to take us seriously. And 
Eh, it kind of worked, but it got very serious in the 1970s. So in 73, 71, 73, and again, 79, you had a series of crises happen. The Yom Kippur War was one such crisis. The Israeli Sinai War with Egypt, which was basically a series of conflicts between Israel and its neighboring Arab countries. And Israel was backed a lot by the U.S., by Britain, a lot of the Western powers, since they basically made Israel from nothing after World War II because they could. So, yeah, there were a lot of Arab nations not really thrilled about this. And then, you know, the West was backing Israel, who, and again, not to go into too often a tangent here, but basically like in the Yom Kippur War, it was a preemptive attack because the Arab nations were building up forces and it was a whole thing. Anyway, the point is sides were made. And that pissed off the OPEC nations. So OPEC decides that what they're going to do is they're going to weaponize oil is what they're going to do. That's the plan here. Now, what's interesting about this is we're talking about the early 70s, right? By this point in time, getting oil from the Middle East was so much cheaper, so much more efficient, even with OPEC and nationalized oil and all those things. It was so much easier that U.S. production was well and truly on its way out. It was, I mean, that's putting it a little dramatically, but it was in a massive decline because it was just so much more economical to get the oil from over there because Saudi Arabia used to stick a straw on the ground and you know, crude comes pouring out. Not really, but you get my point. Anyway, weaponizing oil changed the calculus a lot. And in fact, it changed the calculus in some very key ways. I mean, part of the reason why the U.S. oil and gas industry has come back in the way that it has is because of this. Even though we conceptually knew that we shouldn't be tied to oil and gas from foreign powers, it was just so easy and so seductive and so convenient that we just sort of did it, kind of like Europe with Russian natural gas today, right? With the Ukraine war, we talked about that a few episodes ago. It was kind of the same boat with us. Now, the reality of it is, is that OPEC was a highly inefficient organization. And when they tried to weaponize this, they actually couldn't get everybody on board. They couldn't get everyone to agree. Not everyone was playing by the rules, which is a frequent problem OPEC has when it tries to use production quotas and that can into a whole other conversation. But the point is, it worked in one key way, and that is the U.S. markets and the Western markets freaked out. We spiraled into a recession, even though the actual quantity of fuel was not materially as impacted as you would think. It caused a massive rush on the market which in turn caused a market shock and caused major government overreaction. We had, you know, fuel rationing and you could only, you know, the 55 mile an hour speed limit came out of this to try and conserve fuel. And we just did all this crazy stuff to prepare ourselves for this lack of fuel because OPEC was going to cut off the West from oil. And it worked because we scared ourselves into letting it work, quite frankly, like when you get right down to it. But more importantly, it also caused there to be a revitalization in U.S. oil and gas industry, where we were kind of letting things wind down quite a bit because it was so much easier to just deal with it over there. All of a sudden, it became very apparent that we needed to have access to our own energy supply and not let ourselves get too dependent upon foreign oil and gas. And so that's why this industry in this country has survived in the way that it has is we got a good couple of scares in us in the 70s that could have been a lot worse, but that really revitalized things and kept us going. And 
the reality of it is when you get to energy independence is not as easy as it sounds, but it's also not impossible. You know, keep in mind when you're talking about the export, the balance of trade with U.S. oil and gas, and I've seen a few figures and I'm probably going to mess them up here, but we at this point in time are exporting close to, or we were producing close to what we actually consume. I think we've had a couple of years where we've actually been a net exporter. A couple of years we're a net importer, which basically means we've either produced so much that at the end of the day, we've exported some oil, we've sent it out, sold it elsewhere, or we've needed just a little bit, but we've kept it pretty close. The point is, you may be saying, well, hey, if we're doing that, why aren't we just entirely, why even on years when we're a net exporter, why would we be importing anything if we're producing as much as we need. And that comes down to chemistry, right? Our refineries that were built quite a while ago, by and large, designed to deal with a certain type of crude that's a heavier type of crude and all of that stuff we were generating here back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And then more recent crude discoveries, the Eagle Ford, Permium, and et cetera, are a lighter type of crude that require a different refining process. Well, it costs billions and billions of dollars to retool these fineries. And so most companies just kind of look at it and say, you know what? Let's just sell it overseas and we'll bring in the stuff that we actually have the tools to refine here and then we'll use that and it's fine. And most of these guys aren't going to go out of their way to spend a ton of money to retool their refineries unless they absolutely have to. And more refineries are coming online to compensate for this and you can see that through the production data. But my point is, and I mean, our sponsor T is big into energy independence. And I think that is an important thing. I would say that I'm even more than wanting to be energy independent. I want us to be ideally energy dominant, right? Like I want us to not only cover all of our needs internally, but I would love for us to be exporting to other parts of the world. Let's be the main supplier to Europe if we can. Let's start being a big supplier to parts of South America and all that. You know, let's get in there and really own the market. That's what I want to do. Now, that's easy to say. It's not easy to do. There's a lot of logistics to go into it. There's refining capacity. There is... You know, our law is going to be too prohibitive to allow us to do that, which gets into a whole other series of issues. But at the end of the day, the core question, Grace, that you asked is, you know, what is the impact of U.S. oil and gas on the market? Well, it's interesting because the impact is it's always been there. We've been at the forefront of this as long as modern oil and gas has been a thing. The interesting thing is, In my opinion, we've spent most of our time being surprisingly reactive rather than proactive in the market, right? We react to oil being easier to produce in the Persian Gulf back in the 40s and 50s, and so we just let a lot of our industry rither on the vine. We have OPEC weaponize oil, same thing, by the way, Russia's doing in Ukraine, right? But OPEC weaponizes oil in the 70s, and our reaction is to lose our fucking minds and start rationing oil and doing crazy things and try to, oh, we got we to rebuild the industry. We got to do all these things. Well, yeah, if we had thought about it, if we'd had a little bit more foresight, and honestly, the story, one, we've been way too, as an industry, we've been way too reactive to what the rest of the world's doing rather than proactive, right? That's the first thing is we constantly find ourselves having to change course because of what everyone else is doing without actually having a plan in place and moving forward that way. And part of the unfortunate problem is it's not like U.S. oil and gas is nationalized. These are private companies. These are super majors and midsize and 
independence and all these things. And so the will of the market is going to move us, you would think, in the path of the best choice. The caveat is when you're competing against somebody that is nationalized, that has the quote-unquote unlimited resources of a nation state backing them up, there's all of a sudden an unfair situation, right? It's one voice against many voices. Well, who's going to have the most clear direction? It's the might of you know this nation backing this industry, whether it's making good decisions or bad decisions, versus everyone here trying to make the best decisions they can economically for their business segment. And yes, in a fully capitalist vacuum, that does work. That, you know, within certain frameworks, yeah, the best ideas win. But in this situation, you're dealing with mixed economies. You're dealing with very complex political issues around the Middle East and some very tricky history for everyone involved. On top of that, we as a nation with our energy policy have just been way too reactive rather than proactive in the things that we try and do to advance our cause of national security, energy independence, and you know whatever else we happen to care about that day. So very long answer, and I'm not even sure that I gave you an answer other than to say it is really wicked complicated, but it is also very fascinating. So at the end of the day, I do hope you enjoyed this episode. I do hope, and I'm sure we'll get into various different facets of this as these shows go on. But I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank you guys for the very kind comments, like I said, and putting up with my voice today and my coughs. I know that was probably annoying, but much appreciated. So we will be back next week with another fine show. And in the meantime, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding the frat boys of Texas A&M the gauntlet has been thrown. See you guys later. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.